How many did you receive gifts that you didn't like or that you didn't want? Hopefully not from the person sitting right next to you. How many have returned them already? Anybody out there? How many of you are re-gifters? Do you know there's actually a national re-gifting day? It's the third Thursday of December, so you missed it. So whatever you have right now, you are stuck with. You know, it used to be that we would take gifts that we didn't want. We'd kind of shove it under the bed or we'd tuck it away in a closet somewhere. But, you know, now unwanted gifts are just big business, aren't they? You know, there's websites that are dedicated just to getting rid of them. And not just exchanging them, but now you can get cash for them. We've got eBay, we've got Craigslist, we've got gift card granny, regiftable.com, and the list just goes on and on and on. And of course, with that, out of necessity, certain rules of etiquette had to be established for regifting, most of which you would think is just plain common sense. Like, if you're going to regift something, don't regift used gift cards. You know, a $25 card with only a few dollars left on it, not a good idea. Don't regift partially eaten candy or cookies. You know, you get one of those big tins, you open it up, and there's only a few cookies left in it. Kind of in that same category. And don't use the same wrapping paper. You know, the paper that you just ripped open and now you had to meticulously tape it all back together and give it to someone likely will be discovered as a regift. Don't regift homemade gifts, especially from your children. You know, a craft lovingly prepared for you that says, I love you, Mom and Dad, if you give that to someone without kids, probably going to be discovered as a regift. And whatever you do, don't regift in front of your kids because they will tell on you. You know, sometimes it's so hard just to cover up our disappointment when we open those packages from those that we love and our facial expressions just tell it all, doesn't it? So what do you do with gifts that you don't want? Especially the kind of gifts that don't come from under the tree. Those kinds of things that hit our lives directly or sometimes even indirectly that we didn't plan on. I mean, every New Year's Eve, we celebrate with countdowns and with parties and with fireworks, a lot of hoopla. We kind of have this expectation that we're putting the old year and everything that went wrong, every challenging event that came into our lives, everything that was bad, we're putting that behind us. 2012, good riddance. In so many ways, it was just a horrific year, wasn't it? Mass shootings in Colorado and Oregon and most recently now in Connecticut the murder of children right here in Naperville, the Iranian, North Korean nuclear threats, the Eurozone collapse, Syria and Benghazi, Superstorm Sandy, the Gaza Strip, and now the fiscal cliff. You know, I doubt that any of us came out of 2011 expecting anything like this past year. And if we feel powerless to do something about those kinds of things, we hope that 2013 will come without problems hitting our lives directly. We hope that when that ball drops and hits bottom in Times Square that things are going to get better, that the problems in our lives are going to subside or at least kind of just ease up a little bit. I mean, wouldn't it be great just to have a year without financial troubles, a year to finally get out from under that debt? Wouldn't it be great to have a year without some nagging health issue, without problems in our marriages, without discipline, issues with our kids, without yet another job loss. 
without relational tension with extended family members. You know, a year that was just void of life-altering kinds of events. A year without those kinds of gifts that we don't want, that we never asked for. You know, my guess is that some of us can't wait to get 2012 far behind us. I have to tell you, though, that, you know, there's no guarantee that it's going to be a better year. In fact, it might get worse for some of us. I can't tell you that it's going to be a year without some major crisis in your life. I can't tell you that it's going to be a year without something catching you off guard. You know, in the climate and the condition of our society and with this country and the volatility of the economy, with all the uncertainties in life, a date change doesn't bring automatic resolution doesn't fix everything. I know many of you really struggled this past year. You know, some of you have already come to the point where you've said, you know, I can't take another year like this one. I can't bear additional stuff like this in my life. It's been nonstop and I am pushed to my limits. I don't know what may happen in your life this next year. How you may end up on the receiving end of God's blessing or maybe on the receiving end of more trials. I don't know how you might get upended and really get challenged in your faith. And you're probably thinking right now, well, glad I came tonight. Where's Pastor Dale? You know, I came wanting to usher in the new year with a message of hope and expectation. We get his back up talking gloom and doom. Well, I just want to be honest about it. Didn't you have some things come into your life this past year that you could have done without? That you didn't see coming? Didn't you have some things come into your life this past year that you just didn't anticipate? Maybe it wasn't a major crisis-level kind of thing. Some of you even had those. But maybe it was just a lot of nagging inconveniences. There it was, and still is, let me ask you, what did you do with that in your life? How did you process it? See, it's that kind of stuff that you can't send back or return. You have to deal with it or let it deal with you. You can't just offload it and dump it onto somebody else. Or can you? I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 39. Now, I want to look specifically tonight at verses 4 through 7. Psalm 39, verses 4 through 7. And here David writes, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered and that my life is Fleeing away. My life is no longer than the width of my hand. By the way, he's talking about the width of the base of your four fingers here. Not very long, is it? An entire lifetime, he says, is just a moment to you. Human existence is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows. And all our busy rushing, it ends in nothing. We heap up wealth for someone else to spend. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope 
is in you. I mean, obviously, something major is going on in David's life here that prompts him to write these words. Something unwanted and unwelcomed has crashed into his life and stuff that he certainly doesn't want to have to deal with. And it could be that this psalm is a continuation from Psalm 38, that he's suffering from some kind of affliction and some kind of physical ailment that has just built up and he just can't take it anymore. And piled on top of that, he is so frustrated and discouraged from wrestling with his own sin. And God has been prodding him on it, and it's just wearing him out. Look at what he says in verses 10 and 11. Please don't punish me anymore. I am exhausted by the blows from your hand. When you discipline people for their sins, their lives can be crushed like the life of a moth. Human existence is as frail as breath. You get the sense here that he's got some issues, that he's really struggling, that he's despairing over life itself. And what's more, he thinks that God has just cast him aside, that he's just left him behind to deal with it all by himself, that he's all alone in this. Have you ever had a lot of little issues just kind of build and gang up on you to the point where they just turn into these big, hot messes? I mean, even spiritual issues, and you can't figure out which end is up anymore. And you wonder, how in the world did I get here? See, that's where he's at. He doesn't want to sound like a whiner or a complainer, especially to those who are outside the faith. He doesn't want to sound at all like he's disloyal to God. But the fact of the matter is that he's having some real issues with God right now. He's having some issues over the situation that he's in. And he's got all this pent-up frustration, and he's, he's not trying to say something that he'll later regret. Take a look at the opening verses of this psalm. He says, I, I said to myself, now let me stop there for a moment. This is very strong past tense. It's not clear how long he's been wrestling with this. It, it could be for quite a while. And probably before he even gets in and writes this psalm. But he says, I will watch what I do and and not sin in what I say. I will curb my tongue. The word curb here literally is talking about a muzzle. He's saying, I am so on the verge of just letting this all just spill out that I need to put a muzzle on my mouth just to try to contain it. Just so I won't open it at the point where he says, you know, I've got to strap this muzzle on when the ungodly are around me. But as I stood there in silence, not even speaking of good things, the turmoil within me just grew to the bursting point. And my thoughts grew hot within me and began to burn, igniting a fire of words. Well, the muzzle obviously didn't help. You know, I just love the Psalms. They are raw. They are edgy. Nothing is held back. They, we get the brunt of the um, psalmist's emotional outbursts. I mean, they just lay it all out. Their pain, their anger, their depression, their hurt. I mean, they're questioning God. They wonder at times why he doesn't answer them. Why he doesn't seem to, to give a rip about them. While he appears at times to be so distant and uninvolved. But just as we get that raw, blunt emotion, 
we also get their wonder and their praise and their absolute amazement over God. And those swings of emotion often come in the same psalm, especially in a psalm like this. I mean, you can almost see and hear him processing this here in these verses as he works through this tough situation that he's in. And so by the time we get to verses 4 through 7, he's, he's talking all of this out with God very openly with him. He's just letting it fly. That's exactly what God wants from him. You see, that's what God expects from him. You see, God wants us just to spill it all out with him, even though he already knows it. Because he wants us to process our pain and our, our loneliness and our disappointments that we get in life with a God who so fully and completely understands like no one else possibly can. And he is the only one who can do anything about it. Because even though David is emotionally spent here and is in the dark of how all this is going to work out for him, he knows that no one else but God is able to deliver him. No one else but God is going to provide him meaning and definition to what he's going through. No one else but God is out ahead of him. And no one else but God gives him hope. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 4, Lord, remind me. Teach me. Teach me how, how brief my time on earth is going to be. Remind me that my days are numbered. Teach me, God. Let me see things how you see them. I've got nowhere else to go. I've got no one else to turn to. My only hope is in you. Years ago, I was taking my family to Wrigley Field to watch a Cardinals and Cubs game. And I was driving in on the Kennedy, and I got off on the Addison Street exit. And as I got off on that exit, there was this homeless man who had walked halfway up the ramp. He was right out in the middle of the street. Cars were just swerving to try to avoid him, and his clothes were just shredded, and he was barefoot, and he looked an absolute mess. You know, I'd seen homeless people there before, but normally they're down at the corner, at least waiting for the cars to stop. But this man really grabbed my attention. I, not just in the way he looked, just how desperate he was. Seemingly not caring at all that he could be hit by a car and killed at any minute. I mean, there was no way that anyone could stop where he was and even try to help him if they wanted to. And even beyond that, what impacted me the most was that he was holding up a sign. It was just made out of a, a torn piece of cardboard like this. And all he had written on it was just one word. Hopeless. And I couldn't believe it when I saw that. I thought, what in the world could have happened to this guy? What got to him? What brought him down to rock bottom, to living an almost non-existent life? What unwanted gifts came flooding into his life where all he had left was just to try to process it with a bunch of strangers out on the tollway ramp? But you know what? I think a lot of us are like that guy. 
We may not have the shredded clothes. We may not act out of that level of desperation. We may not walk around with a torn cardboard sign that says hopeless on it. But inside, sometimes we feel just like that. Instead of crying out to God and, and wrestling with Him and struggling with Him through our pain, we, we often just blow God off in our anger. We just want to blame it all on Him. We try to process it all on our own. And that usually doesn't work very well. And it can turn us into an angry and bitter person. When you look at the book of Psalms as a whole, do you realize that 70 out of 150 are lament psalms? I mean, that's almost half of them. And we sometimes get this impression that the psalms are, are, are just songs of praise and thanksgiving. You know, everything's great. Everything's fine. Praise the Lord. God is good. In fact, the Hebrew title of this book is Tehillim. It means praises. But so many of the psalms are just like this one, where people are in tears. They're, they're crying out to God. They're disoriented. They're afraid. They're wondering what is going on. They're pleading to God for help. What really stands out is that with every one of these types of psalms, except for two, the psalmists end up praising God, often before they have even received an answer from Him. Because they know that in spite of everything else that's going on in their lives, that He is their hope. So these psalms are written to teach us. They're here to show us, to invite us to process our pain and our frustration and our unanswered questions with Him. See, God wants us to come to Him, even if we are in a complete fog about what He's doing. And you can see the psalmist doing that here. In the middle of this psalm, remind me, teach me, remind me. And in that process of crying out to God and pleading with Him and questioning Him and confessing to Him and remembering who He is and what He's done in, the, in your life and what He is yet to do brings Him to the point of saying that my only hope is in you. See, and it's that kind of hope. It's the kind of hope the Bible talks about comes with an expectation that God is there. He's going to sustain us. He's going to stay with us. He's going to lead us through it. See, it's that process here where David sees the power and the presence and the provision of God that's been there for him all along. He comes to realize that his past and his present and his future is in the hands of a loving and compassionate God. And that the very difficulties that he is going through are opportunities for him to show others who God is in his life. That this is the God who knows what life is all about. This is my God. You see, all of your past and everything that is flooding through your mind and weighing heavy on your hearts tonight all the things that lie out ahead of you in this new year, do you realize that all of that past, present, and future has been and is and will be in the hands of a loving and compassionate God? 
Do you realize that one of the main purposes of Scripture, Scriptures are there to sustain our hope? See, God's not just throwing a bunch of random stories together. It's about real people going through real kinds of stuff, just like you and me. And we see in the Scriptures how they get their strength and how they make it through trials. How they get encouraged. How they trust God even when the outcome is not what they want. See, that's why we need to stay in the Scriptures. That's why they're so vital for our lives. Because we need to hear from God. We need to, to listen to Him. Now more than ever before. Because they remind us that our God will never walk out on us. You know, because our own feelings. And what this world is going to tell us again and again is that it just isn't worth it. That staying in your troubled marriage isn't worth it. Being a single mom isn't worth it. Being honest at work just isn't worth it. Staying sober isn't worth it. Serving at the church isn't worth it. Following hard after God just isn't worth it. I have to tell you, that kind of thinking sometimes creeps into my life every once in a while. Because sometimes I think that being a pastor is not worth it. Now, I have this running joke that I've had over the years, especially when I'm having a hard week or just kind of getting weighed down by ministry. I'd rather be a UPS driver. Now, no offense to UPS drivers at all. But there's something about what I think is the simplicity of it. Yeah, I'm sure I'm totally wrong here, and please don't burst my bubble, because this has been with me for a long time. But here's my dream about being a UPS driver. You know, you drive up to a home or a place of business, and you bang on the door, you leave the package, and you drive off. And the best thing about it is you don't have to talk to anybody. What a great job that would be. We all have times where we question, don't we, if it's worth it, even if following Jesus is worth it. You know, and it's through the Scriptures where we hear from God, where we're reminded again and again, yes, it is worth every bit of it. Jesus Christ provides the filter to understand and explain our failures and our setbacks and the criticisms that come into our lives and the bad events that happen to us. Jesus Christ makes it possible for us to say that there's no circumstance that is beyond the reach of his hope today. You see, Jesus Christ is not just the Savior of the world, but he's our Savior. He's not just the resurrection and the life, but he he is our resurrection and he's our life. We've been adopted into his family. We've been made sons and daughters. We've been given unshakable and invulnerable spiritual blessings that cannot be taken away from us from no one or no thing. No matter what happens. Yeah. It's worth it. So as I was working my way through this psalm and thinking about this past year and all the crises that have taken place and all the tragic and horrific things that have happened and all the challenges that we face on a daily basis, 
And then thinking about coming into this new year, I had to ask, you know, God, what are you teaching us here? What do you want us to know about you? How do you want us to deal with unknowns? How do you want us to handle this hard and painful stuff? How do you want us to face the future? The kind of world that we live in today. I think with this psalm and others like it and what God is teaching us is this. I want you to live your life by showing my glory in every single circumstance. I want you to live with intentionality and with purpose to display my glory in every situation of your life. Even to see that every crisis is an opportunity to put him on display. I want you to live with an expectation that I want to show up and and show through your life, regardless of what happens to you. See, David got there. That's where his hope comes from. Because he gets to the place where he recognizes that everything that comes into his life, whether it's been good or whether it's bad, whether he has brought it upon himself through his own personal sin, or it's a result of things that are far beyond his control. That it presents an opportunity for him to trust God in ways that he never had to before. To obey him, even when he can't see the outcome. To fall on his knees in confession and exaltation and absolute worship, all to the glory of God. See, he sees that this difficulty is his opportunity to show others who God is in his life. To put God on display. You see, that's what the glory of God is. It's the holiness of God put on display. It's God just bursting through us and shining through us. That is going to get noticed. You know, back in the early to mid-1700s, Jonathan Edwards emerged as one of the most extraordinary figures in American history. He was a pastor and a theologian and a missionary to Native Americans, especially to the Mohawk. And he ended up being the third president of Princeton University. He became a follower of Jesus Christ at the age of 16 while he was a senior at Yale. And during that year, he had become violently ill. In fact, so ill that he believed he was going to die. So he began bargaining with God that if he ever got better, if he ever recovered that he'll turn his life over to God. Well, he did recover. And he had to make good on that promise. When he was 18 years old, he took his first pastorate in a small Presbyterian church in New York City. And even in those early days as a young pastor, he worried and struggled about his commitment to Christ. I mean, he just wanted to make sure that it was genuine, that it wasn't just this half-hearted negotiation that he had with God a few years ago. So as he sought to do this, he wrote out 70 resolutions over a two-year period. And he kept a diary to track his day-to-day progress against them. And you can go online and get the complete list. And I encourage you to do that. It's just fascinating to read through them. But they're written in the style of the time. Let me just read a few of them for you. Number one, he says, that what, what I will, will do whatsoever I think to be the most to God's glory. Number seven, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do 
if it were the last hour of my life. Number 25, to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and direct all my forces against it. Number 28, to study the Scriptures so steadily and constantly and frequently that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. And number 67, after afflictions, to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. You see, that's putting the holiness of God on display through your life. That's living for His glory. I mean, those are resolutions that go far beyond just resolving to, to lose weight or to find a better job or to save more money or to eat more healthy like Americans typically do and break every one of them. You see, those are resolutions that are purposed to reveal God's glory through our lives. You see, God wants to bring us to the point where we know that the only certain thing in life is Jesus Christ. Where you are seeing and experiencing in His power, in His presence, in His provision, that is the only way that the church is going to pierce through the darkness and the evil and the injustices of this messed up and broken world that we live in. This world needs to see His glory in every circumstance of our life. We need to let God show up in our lives. John Piper, who speaks so passionately and, and, and writes so clearly about God's glory, I've learned so much from him. He's a cancer survivor. And in his book, Don't Waste Your Cancer, on the eve of his surgery, he wrote 10 reflections on, as he processed whatever the outcome of his cancer surgery was going to be. Here's a few of them. You'll waste your cancer if you seek comfort from your odds rather than from God. You'll waste your cancer if you spend too much time reading about cancer and not enough time reading about God. You'll waste your cancer if you treat sin as casually as you did before. You'll waste your cancer if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and to the glory of Christ. See, God wants to be on display in our lives regardless of what hits us. He doesn't want us to waste anything that comes our way. He wants us to learn how to trust Him through it. And what's so powerful about this psalm and others like it is that it shows that believers struggle just like everybody else. That we get the wind knocked out of us at times just like everybody else. That we get cancer just like everybody else. That we die just like everybody else. But we can show everybody else the difference that Jesus Christ makes. We can show his glory. See, my guess is that some of you are getting a little tired of your same old routine. You go year after year and you come to the end of another one like we are now. Without seeing any measurable difference or change in your life. You don't see your faith growing any stronger. You don't see your response to crisis getting any better. And maybe you haven't seen the power of God at work in your life for a very long time. Do you really want to go into another year like that? 
when I was 18, not more than a year in my walk with Christ, I was asked to teach a Sunday school class for older adults at my church. And I was just scared to death. I never had done that before. I mean, what could I possibly teach a group of seasoned churchgoers who had so much knowledge of the Bible, far more than I did at that time? And as I began to teach that class, I quickly discovered that many in the class knew far less than I did. And that just surprised me. In fact, it shocked me. Because I'd seen that so many of them had just ended up with their lives being just consumed by complacency and by criticism. I discovered that they wanted me to teach because they hadn't been around a new believer for a long time. It's kind of exciting for them. Now, I remember thinking at the time, is, is that how I'm going to be when I get to be their age? In fact, I'm there right now. Is that what the Christian life is all about? Is that what I should expect? Is that what it means to follow Jesus? Is that what it means to follow the, the Savior, the Redeemer of the world? And to do it so unenthusiastically. See, that just didn't add up for me. You see, we don't know how much time we have left. Psalmist, he didn't either. But we need to invite God to remind us, just as he did, that my days are numbered and that my life is fleeing away. See, the window of time when, when you have the opportunity to do something great for God, it's, it's closing. When you have the opportunity to do something that will make kingdom differences, that will carry with it eternal weight. When you have the opportunity to put God's glory on display through your life. I don't know what's in store for us in 2013. But I do know this. That Jesus Christ is our only hope. Let the world see him through your life. Let others see him in your life. Let others know the difference that he makes because of your life. No matter what happens, all to his glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, I don't know what's going on in the lives of everyone here. And I don't know always how to discern what's going on in this world that we live in. But I do know that you are our only hope. I pray that our eyes would be fixed upon you as we go into this new year. And that our hearts would be lifted towards you. We ask that you will penetrate our lives with the truth of the gospel. So that your glory will be put on display through us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.